Jim, uh, I heard before the meeting here, Jim asking about Joe. I'm sitting right down front, and I said, who are you looking for? And he said, Joe, that's me. He said, well, I met you five years ago, and he was real complimentary. And he said, you've gained some weight, hadn't you? I always get a good feeling about this. I have gained some, and I'm trying to take it back off now, but uh, that's not near the problem I used to have. You know the song, How Great Thou Art, really tears me up. A year before last, I had the privilege of speaking at the Blackstone Retreat over in Blackstone, Virginia, that Sunday morning. Pretty April morning, we had an AA choir there, and an AA pianist, and an AA soloist. We had AA communion, even, and we had an AA search. Well, they remember saying that song, How Great Thou Art, and I think every hair on my head stood straight up, and it still does when I hear it. It's such a thing, how great he is. My name is Joe Alden. I'm an alcoholic. But by the grace of God and the tremendous love that I have received from the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, the support and encouragement I've received from my family and my non-alcoholic friends, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink today. For those who may be new to the program, I know nothing of it. When I say necessary, I mean exactly that. For there was a time in my life when it was absolutely necessary that I take a drink, that I take several drinks, in order that I might stop shaking, in order that I might even speak again, in order that I might get the buttons buttoned on my clothes and my shoes laced and tied. But this is a terrific thing that happens to me today, is that I get to stand here and say that by the grace of God and the fellowship of AA, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink today. It's so nice to be back and see some old friends, some like Jim here that I haven't seen in a number of years, some others that I haven't seen in a number of years. It's nice especially to see the man who first called on me, uh, made an AA call on me back in 1959, Arvin from Hot Springs and his wife Tilly, who came to us so often in our home there, and I know Arvin is indebted to me because I must have kept him sober for quite a while there, as well as the other members of AA in Hot Springs. And to see John and Laura Hooker here, who have been so dear to Jeanette and I and have helped so much. Tab and Wanda, who have been so dear to me and still are, and many, many others here who have been an inspiration to me in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and who have helped me to enjoy sobriety. I've spoken to quite a few meetings and conventions. I'm grateful for it. It is quite a privilege. This is the first time I've ever spoken to one where they put a clock out in front of me. Normally they do tell me about how long they want to speak, but Jim's got an alarm clock, thanks to <laughs> I suppose my reputation preceded me. I did get wound up once down at Austin and talked an hour and 15 minutes. I promise you I won't today. When I do this, I tell them I usually wear it out about the two little boys down in Louisiana who were such fine playmates during the week, got along so well together, and on Sunday had their troubles because one was Catholic and one was Methodist. I know very little about the Catholic religion, but I'll go through it the best I can. But they had so much trouble on Sunday until their parents got together and discussed it and said, well, let's start sending them to church together. The one Sunday they'll go to the Catholic Church together, the next Sunday the Methodist Church. They did this on the first Sunday they went to the Catholic Church. The priest came out and did something, and the little Methodist boy punched the little Catholic boy and said, What does that mean? And he was real sweet to him, and he explained it to him. And something else happened, and what does that mean? And he explained it to him, and so on during the service. That Sunday they got along well together, and the next Sunday they went to the Methodist Church together. I do know a little about that because I am a Methodist, but the choir came in, and the congregation rose, and he said, What does that mean? And he was real sweet to him and explained it to him and so on through the service. The Apostles' Creed, what does that mean? And so on. Finally, the minister got up and walked to the pulpit, took his watch off, all this I had just done, and laid it there on the pulpit. A little Catholic boy said, what does that mean? And the little minister said, not a damn thing. <laughs> That's about the way it is for me. 
about Alcoholics Anonymous and what it has done for me. Uh, Jeanette and I this weekend have been down home, home being in the southern part of the state. I was one time a member of the Hot Springs group and Pine Bluff and now Fort Smith. I think those are the only groups I've ever belonged to in Arkansas, but we call all of them home. Now, but anyway, we've been down in the southern part of the state where I was raised and she was raised. We visited with her mother, who is uh, rather aged now, and my father, who is aged. And uh, while we were there, or every time we've been there, rather, and done in Holliday's uh, hometown there, where I graduated from high school quite some long while ago, as you can look at my gray hair and tail. But old Mr. Gill, I'm sure those of you who are from Dumas remember the old man well. He's been dead quite some while. But the night of my graduation, Mr. Gill got up and said that uh, he felt like members of that graduating class were going places. I don't know what's happened to the rest of them. One of them, I believe, is still a doctor. They're a girl, of all things, is a doctor in Dumas. One of them went off to West Point. I don't know about the rest of them. They probably have gone places. I've gone a lot of places. You see, I'm in the United States Army, still in it. They give a lot of travel, so I've seen Hawaii and Saipan and Tinian and Blake uh, uh, Island and the Philippines and Korea and Japan down that way. I've also been to France and Belgium and Luxembourg and England and Germany and Holland and Iceland. I've been to jail over here in Hot Springs, Arkansas. <laughs> and I've been in the funny farm down at Brook Army Hospital in San Antonio. And I've been in orbit. And I can tell you that I went a lot further out than John Glenn and before John Glenn. And I had more trouble with my re-entry than Scott Carpenter. <laughs> I have seen some of the most vivid technicolor that ever existed. Uh, Metro Golden Meyer and Universal and all of them have not yet come up with anything like the technicolor that I have seen. In visiting also down home, my dad is a druggist, and every time I've been down there, of course, I walk around his little old drugstore and look at the patent medicines that are for sale there, and I found that and draw a parallel in my life. He, of course, has quite a stock of Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound. You know what that's for? That's for menopause, change of life. And I've thought quite often, after looking at that and some of the other tonics he has there, that I, too, have been afflicted with a change of life, and it had nothing to do with menopause. I changed from a person who knew nothing even about the outside of a jail into the person that knows what the inside of one looks like. I changed from a person who was a loving husband into a husband that couldn't tolerate his wife. I can tolerate her real well today and enjoy so much being married to her still. I changed from a person who was a loving father into a father that couldn't stand being around his children, and the feeling was mutual amongst all of them. I changed from a person who used to laugh at someone having DTs into a person who had DTs himself. From a person who used to smirk at someone attempting suicide into a person who attempted himself because of this drinking problem. A lot of changes have taken place. Back in 1959, I was being considered seriously for elimination from the United States Army because I was drunk all the time, every day. Year before last, I don't say this boastfully because I give credit for everything good that's happened to me to this program, but year before last, I was promoted to the highest enlisted grade that there is. I was promoted to Sergeant Major in the United States Army. There aren't many of us, and it's, uh, it's quite an honor, it's quite a thrill, and it certainly is a blessing, and it's all come about by AA. These changes that have taken place since coming to AA are changes that I believe are worth the whole bloody mess there. The, the change that took place in my daughter and her attitude towards me back in 1959, in the spring of 59, when she asked her mother, please don't let him go to my graduation. She knew what shape I would be in. I'd been in that shape for some little time already, and I didn't have the habit of getting off one very soon once I got on it. Or the older son, who used to disappear every time I walked, or rather staggered into the house, he would go on upstairs and uh, get away up from me. The youngster, who at that time, I guess, was about seven or eight years old, who would say, Mother, do I have to kiss him goodnight? 
This is a change of life I had with the attitude that they had towards me. <laughs> Even our dog didn't think too much of me, uh, although I was more uh, in his favor than I was the rest of them. One reason being that he made the late evening trip with me to the liquor store and I bought him a package of men. So I thought all the time that that dog might have been an alcoholic too because he had his problems and maybe he was able a little bit better to tolerate me. But this change I'm talking about that is so wonderful is that uh, about four years ago or four and a half years ago, our daughter had her second little boy. And his middle name is Joseph. And this is a thrill to me that she thinks enough of me, respects me enough as a father that her little boy is named for me. Year before last, I think it was now, the years are passing on pretty fast, our older son got married and I was the best man at his wedding. And I can tell you there were some tears there. Year before last, when I went up to Louisville, Kentucky, to speak to a convention there, our youngster, who will be 18 now in April, drove me out to the airport. And you know these youngsters, he's an old teenager about like this above me, and they're not much on displaying affection. But there at the airport in Fort Smith, before I got ready to go out and get on the plane, he threw his arms around me and kissed me and said, Daddy, we're real proud of you. These are the kind of changes that have taken place in my life since I have come to this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The change takes place one day at a time, though. It doesn't take place after I've been sober 15 years or whatever, or a month or six months. It takes place one day at a time, and sometimes we're so impatient that things will work out far sooner. They don't do it. Of course, we don't get ourselves into the shape soon. We don't get out of it soon. And so the changes are almost worth what we have gone through. By taking it one day at a time, the days have run into weeks and the weeks, months, and the months, years. It still takes the same thing for me today, though that it took in 1959 to stay sober. And that's one day at a time. And that's practicing the same things that I practiced then. Maybe even now a little more diligently. And that is to contact my higher power prior to leaving my bed in the morning. Changes in the attitude of others around me. The changes in being able to accept. And being able to accept the fact that I'm an alcoholic and to live with it. And I like here to bring out a little joke that Frank Smith used to tell so often down at Pinebluff. I've used it quite often about the couple who'd been married for quite a number of years and had never had any children. Finally, finally, they were blessed with a little boy and the mother, as all mothers do in her hospital room there, asked the doctor or the nurse to bring the baby to her. They did, and she counted the fingers and counted the toes and saw that it was all there. The ears were there, the hair and everything, except there was one thing. Or the navel should have been, there was a little gold screw. But this upset her quite a bit, and she called the doctor in and talked to him about it, and she was quite distraught. And the doctor said, you have a perfect child. God has given you a fine baby except for that one thing. If you learn to live with it, if you accept it, then nothing will ever go wrong. They went from doctor to doctor, and each one told them basically the same thing. And so they became appeased pretty well. They accepted this as being something they couldn't change. And the little boy, of course, grew on up into years, and he wasn't so acceptable towards it because he was referred to by his playmates as old gold belly button and a few slurring names such as that. And he got quite upset, so he went to his mother, and she tried to tell him the same thing these doctors had told him. Learn to accept it. Learn to live with it, and everything will be all right. He wasn't able to do it, and finally one night he went into his bedroom and closed the door and took the screwdriver and unscrewed that little screw, and his ass fell off. <laughs> and I apologize to the young people and to the mothers-in-law here for a little language I do use occasionally. I did give up drinking. I haven't given up telling dirty jokes. I will clean them up some, though, Jim. Some of them I'll leave out that I do normally tell. But that can happen to me, too. If I forget for one day that I'm powerless over alcohol, if I forget for one day that there is help 
but that I must ask for it. If I forget for one meeting or one group of meetings, one month of meetings, to go to AA, to go to the meeting and there again remind myself of what has happened to me in the past and remind myself of what has happened to me as of today because of the program. I thought another woman too about the Indian who was up in Kansas City at the bus station waiting for a bus to open Mulgee, Oklahoma. And over in the corner of the lobby there he saw a machine that says for 25 cents I'll answer any three questions. This Indian, like most of us, was pretty curious about this thing, so he went over and dropped his porter in, and the lights flashed and the bells rang and the voice came out and said, You may now ask your three questions. He said, Who am I? How much do I weigh? And where am I going? And the lights flashed and the bells rang again and said, You are a Cherokee Indian. You weigh 187 pounds and you're going to Muscogee, Oklahoma. He was upset because this machine knew so much about him and he said, Perhaps it's because of the way I'm dressed. And so he went next door and got another coat and another hat and put on it and came back and dropped the quarter in. And the lights flashed and the bells rang and the voice came out and said, You may now ask your three questions. He said, Who am I? How much do I weigh? And where am I going? The lights flashed and the bells rang again. The voice came back and said, You are a Cherokee Indian. You weigh 187 pounds and you're going to Muscovy, Oklahoma. This upset him more and he said, Well, there must be some way that I can confuse this machine. So he got changed for a quarter, got him a dime, and went into the men's room and pushed the dime in the stall and went in and sat down for quite some while. If you follow me, he was trying to change his weight. Nothing happened, and he finally came back out after a while and put his quarter in the machine again. Lights flashed and the bells rang, and the voice says, You may now ask you three questions. He said, Who am I? How much do I weigh? And where am I going? And the voice, a little impatiently, said, You are still a Cherokee Indian. You still weigh 187 pounds. And you farted around and missed your bus to Muscogee. <laughs> <laughs> this too I can do. I can do around and miss sobriety. I can do around and miss habit. <laughs> I can do around and miss life. You know, quite often I think we look back and we try to decide, well, now what kind of alcoholic am I? You know, to come up with some real sophisticated ideas here, the alphabetic gamma omega epsilon theory. And for a while I got quite disturbed about what type was I, or what type am I. I finally came to the conclusion that I must be all of them. The same thing about when did I become an alcoholic, and I went back and researched my past life to decide when did I become an alcoholic. These things are incidental. It matters not really what type of alcoholic I am, if there are various types. It matters not really when I became an alcoholic, but it matters a great bit that I realize that I'm an alcoholic. It matters more that there is a fellowship that I can come to for guidance and for strength and for hope that I can share my experiences with and my hope with and that I can share my faith with. Because this is a place wherein we are not ashamed to speak of a higher power, where we're not ashamed to say that God means something to me, that he has done something for my life. I like always to disagree with these theologians down at uh, Amity College, I believe it was, who came out with this theory a few years ago that God is dead. And tell you one thing, if he's dead, he just died in the last minute or two. He's been alive all day today that I talked to him since early this morning, off and on. But in going back and trying to research this thing and decide when I started having a problem. At one time, I decided it was in Germany. We lived there from 1953 until 1956. I was sergeant major at that time of an engineer combat battalion, and we were in the field a good deal. 
And to be combat ready for the Russians or whatever might come up at any given time, we had a basic load of ammunition and a basic load of rations and a basic load of spare parts. And I had a basic load of whiskey. I always carried two sets of McNaughton's along in my duffel bag. Of course, two sets isn't very much for an alcoholic, but being the sergeant major, of course, I was in charge of the battalion mail clerk who had a driver's license. But having a German name and speaking the language some, I was able to communicate with the Germans who ran the class six store. That's the liquor store there. They had little cards that they gave us. They gave me one and Jeanette one. She never knew she had one, really, but they'd punch a little hole in there for each week and you could get a fit. And I made arrangements with them that they would just punch in an empty hole and I would buy sometimes five fists at the time. And every day we were in the field, I would send this poor little old PFC back into Frankfurt. Sometimes it would be 150 or 200 miles. Rob, go into Frankfurt and get the mail. And while you're there, here's my whiskey ration card. Will you stop and pick me up fifth of McNaughton's? And if something happens and you get there late, and you can't take care of both of them, we'll just get the mail because we're not going to need it out here anyway. <laughs> I should have realized that I was needing the bottle out there. Of course, our hindsight is better than our foresight. These landmarks that have gone in the past, I can see real well from this side where I couldn't see them from the other side. At any rate, my drinking progressed there in Germany. I think I might have been an alcoholic uh, even some time before then. We know, however, that it is a progressive disease that things got worse. And there were a few times when Jeanette mentioned something to me about, honey, you're drinking a lot. I explained it away, and she bought it there. You know, well, we're over here, and I'm in the field a lot, and a rough outfit, and away from home, and most everybody else does it, and all these excuses. And she thought about it. And I thought about it, too. It sounded good to me that I really wasn't having much of a problem. I should have realized it that one Christmas. And, you know, we get so uh, exuberant, we get so outgoing, we get so extravagant. Oh, uh, well, now, this is one year I'm really going to give you that something nice. And I went down to a first store there in Frankfurt, Turks. The old German spoke no English at all, and poor old man, I introduced him to uh, installment plans like we have here in the United States. <laughs> I bought her a fur coat there. I think I gave him 50 marks down. The total price was about 600 marks, I guess, around $150. But I gave the old man 50 marks, and that's one of the debts I paid. I didn't finally get him paid off, but at any rate, I picked out this, this real pretty fur coat. <laughs> And went by the commissary and got some butcher paper and wrapped it. That made it look real nice. It was the only paper that I could find, and it looked good enough to me. And I hid the coat out that night. And the next morning, Christmas morning, she had the tree all fixed, and our kids were there. It should have been a real happy morning. I went down to the basement and had two or three drinks. Of course, I kept my bottle down there. And I went down and had two or three and brought this fur coat up and presented it to her. And, you know, she cried most all of Christmas Day. She said, I don't know what I've done to deserve this, but here I am in Germany a long ways away from home. With a drunk husband and a fur coat I wouldn't wear even if it tipped me. I don't know what that thing could have been made out of. <laughs> but you know, the German women are rather large, and uh, Jeanette isn't, so the shoulders came about down to here on her, and the bottom of it all the way to the floor. No wonder she was crying that day, but I should have known perhaps then that something was wrong with my head. If my mind was all messed up, I wouldn't have thought uh, anything like that. And many other things that I did over there like that, of course, they were minor compared to the ones later. But we rocked on through our three years there, and it came time in 1956 for us to return to the United States. They sent us out to a hotel, and we stayed there for ten days. They had a bar that opened at six o'clock in the morning, and there again, see, I'm a long ways from home, over here being mistreated by these people because they don't put us on a plane, and so I'll just uh, have me a few, and at a uh, bar opening so early, I'd get up early and go down and, and visit with them and have a few, and have a few all during the day. This went on for 10 days, which was merely 10 days tacked on, you might say, three years of rather heavy drinking. 
Nothing had gone over then. There might be something wrong. And so finally on a Sunday afternoon, our plane came in. We got on it and left for Shannon Island. We developed some engine trouble on the way and stopped off at Shannon for about four hours. As soon as we got inside the airport there, I went up to the bar and started having it. So we got ready to go. I was walking out. I saw a big display of Irish whiskey there, a full quart for a dollar and twenty-five cents. Well, you can't turn a bargain like that down, you know. You just about have to buy one. So I bought a quart of it, and they wrapped it up in a sack, the most crinkly sounding sack I've ever seen in my life. I don't know what kind of paper they use there. Anyway, we got on the plane. That night, I took the two seats on one side and the kids three on the other, and I was sitting next to the window. A few hours out from Shannon on the way to New York, I developed the need for a drink. I imagine some of you know about what it is when you develop the need for a drink. So she was kind of dozing off, and I thought, well, I'll just sneak this in my jacket and go on back to the toilet and take a drink. And I reached down to get that fifth, and this darn paper bag rattled, and she woke up and looked at me, and I waited for her to doze off again. It's the same thing. We spent the whole trip looking at each other from Shannon to New York. <laughs> We got off in the midst of a blizzard there in New York, and of course I was really developed a need for a drink then. But we cleared customs and had to wait for a bus to come out, and they were putting us up at the St. George Hotel. The blizzard had caused everybody to have to stay there in New York, and no one could get out going overseas or coming back. And they gave us one room there with two single beds in it and a rollway. Well, you know, with five people in a room, it's pretty hard to get enough privacy to take a drink out of a court. I was just about as bad as it was on the airplane. So I did something then. I started talking to Jeanette. I don't know if I've ever said this in front of her or not. But how about you stand up just a minute? I want to show something and prove something to her. <laughs> I started telling her about how she had B.O. And she should go take a shower. She'd never had B.O. in her life. I've had it a lot of times. I've had it now. She went in the shower. And there in front of our three kids, two of which were teenagers, I said, you know, Daddy sure has caught cold. The rest of them didn't have cold, and really I didn't either. Took the cork out of that bottle and took me some big drinks. Now, right, right then and right there, I should have known that I wasn't a normal drinker. Because normal drinkers, I don't think, go around taking a cork out of a bottle and drinking it in front of their teenagers. And we started home finally after they got the roads cleared and we picked up our new car there with the chains on it and took off and started home. We were eager, of course, to get back to Arkansas. We would uh, just keep driving. And I had this cork there in the car. So we'd pull up somebody and I said, let's stop and get a cup of coffee. Get the whole world. So everybody go in. Get in and say, dog's gone. I left my cigarettes out there in the car. I'd left them out there on purpose. We're going to go back and get my cigarettes and take a drink. Next time I'd left my lighter. Or next time I hadn't gotten the key. I was just so busy, you know, coming up with excuses and reasons to run back and forth. So we came on home. We got back uh, to Memphis. It was getting late in the evening. We decided we wouldn't drive on home then because it would be around midnight and get her people up and my people up and we would spend the night. And so I don't think she had really known what had happened with that court. Of course, it had been gone for a few miles then. And I said, well, I'm tired from all this driving and all this trip home, and, and I'm just going to stop and get me a half pint. So I'll have a drink or two tonight so I can sleep good. It was all right with her. It sounded logical to her because a half pint was better than those fifths I'd been buying over there all the time. Of course, I went into the liquor store, and I found out the price was way up here in the United States, too. It was $1.85 for a half pint where I'd been getting the full fifth for $2.00. But I'm a real sharp alcoholic. I didn't buy one half and I bought two. I put one in my side pocket and threw the other one on the seat. I don't know if she knew it before or not, but I drank that pint that night. Now, there again, I should have known something was wrong with my drink. A normal drinker doesn't do things like this. We got on home, and I know Jeanette was hopeful. 
that our life would change and my life would change after we got to Hot Springs and got settled out. We were fortunate we were assigned there on a reserve advisor duty. We were hopeful that being back in the States would make a change. And perhaps it did for a little bit. My drinking wasn't quite so bad, or at least I didn't think it was. But it kept on there through 56 and 57 and 58, drinking quite often, occasionally having a little sober period and never getting down, not having any trouble with the law or anybody else. Jeanette was rather disappointed, and so were the kids. We belonged to the Oakland Methodist Church then. I recall one Tuesday the minister called and said, Joe, you've been selected to serve on the official board here at the church. Would you serve? I had a brief feeling of humility, one of the few I've ever had in my life, and I felt like I wasn't worthy of being on an official board, and I said, well, I don't know. I can't give you an answer today. Would you call back Thursday? Thursday, he called back, and I was on that juice again, and I felt like I would make him about the finest official board member during the possible time. I was a real fine official board member. Went to every meeting drunk, spearheaded, and got enough uh, people behind it to where we raised the minister's salary, $500 a year. He loved me. You damn right he did. <laughs> The people in Hot Springs are still paying for that. I remember the official board over at Goddard Methodist Church in Fort Smith now, I'll guarantee you, I haven't said anything about raising anybody's salary. I've watched the budget like some of the rest of them do. Anyway, on into 1958. Things just a little bit worse all the time. Just a little bit worse. And yet still not having any idea. And the temperament I am, the full pride, the false pride, the egotism and the arrogance, and my thinking of what an alcoholic was. I wasn't about to say I had a drinking problem. I wouldn't even let myself ponder over it for a minute. But in 1958, I had to undergo a physical. You know, the Army gets around to you that way every now and then. In spite of all the conniving I did with the medics, I had to get around seeing the doctor I had to see. I guess my complexion might have sort of given me away. I was a rather livid color. I was sort of purple then. Uh, my liver evidently was rather enlarged at that time, which is a dead giveaway for a man doing a lot of drinking. This doctor talked to me some about it the night that he finished the physical, and it uh, didn't shake me up too much because I was able to lie to him and to me at the same time. He said, I do drink a good deal, but I don't have a drinking problem. Most people in the service do drink a good deal, and I convinced myself along with him that I didn't. And wasn't too shook up about it until a couple of days later I came into my office, and my secretary had put a note on my desk that they wanted to see me up at the hospital so they could run some liver tests. Well, being an alcoholic, I'm not too damn dumb. I knew what they had on their mind there. And in my sachets around Hot Springs, I ran it kind of like a milk run. I'd go to one liquor store in the morning, and the next one I went to another one, and so on. I didn't want anybody to think I was drinking too much. I said, well, there were seven liquor stores there thinking I was drinking too much. But in one of them, I'd gotten acquainted with a little old woman there, Buddy's liquor store. I don't think it's there anymore, right down by the Gulf Station, fairly close to my office. Poor little thing, uh, she, I know, didn't make much of a salary there. And I advised her, Jeanette, I told her about this little woman that had a magazine stand. And quite often when I didn't eat my supper, every night when I didn't eat my supper, I always told her I'd eaten that day. You know, a drunk's not going to eat much supper or much at any time. But I took a little tray down to her, and this little woman loved me, and I'm sure she got concerned over me, and she was just one of seven liquor stores. But one night I went in, she was uh, saying her prayers there. She was Catholic. She had her rosary out, and was talking to me about different things happening to you, you know. Not saying I was an alcoholic because I was drinking too much, but telling me about a prayer that she had used in her life that had helped her. The prayer of St. Jude, that is Jude. So she let me have this prayer. I didn't say a thing to her about why I needed it or what I was going to use it for. It's just one of those things that worked out that way. And I took the prayer of St. Jude on home with me, and I used it, and would you believe it? I got sober. I don't know how this higher power works. I really know it works. Maybe he's got somebody working for him by the name of Thaddeus Jude. If so, old Thaddeus came through for me, but I got sober then. And in a little while, things were better around the house. 
Jeanette was glad to see me when I came home in the afternoon, and so were the children, and so was the dog. Things got real well. If is a big word. If I had called Arvin then, I wouldn't have such a story to tell. But I think I would have been cheated out of something. At any rate, I didn't call Arvin then. I didn't call anybody from AA because I still felt like I had no drinking problem. And things went along well until I had one drink of all things, a whiskey sour, and I'll never know why because I don't even like them. I didn't like mixed drinks out of the bottle was away. It wasn't any time. This, of course, was in 1959, in the spring of 59. It wasn't any time, and I can look back on some of the lucid hours or days that I had along about that time. It wasn't any time until I had that same shaking the other morning. But trying to drive to work, and my elbows started twitching, and this real tight feeling in the chest. And it wasn't but a couple of weeks until I had to have the half pint before I went to the office. And many times I said, well, I'm not going to drink it today. I'm just going to go on down there and get inside of the office drive around the block and take a drink. And around the block, I guess those employees of mine must have thought I trying to land the thing there in the parking lot somewhere. Knock off that half pint, but that was going to be all. Now, this would stop me from shaking. Noon, I would go home and have lunch with Jeanette, and things would be all right. You know what happens when you get a half pint in you. Nine o'clock, I said, I'm going out to A County or someplace and get another half pint. At 11.30, call Jeanette and say, someone's driven up from Little Rock, I'm going to have lunch with them. And that evening, go home drunk. And the thing kept getting worse and getting worse. All through the summer, the same thing. And you know how it is when you leave that old bottle out there in the front seat and the sun shines down through the windshield and gets it real hot? You take a drink, it'll just tear you up, doesn't it? And then, to get on down further in the, the uh, way there, where I, Jeanette would have to get up and take our kids to school. I didn't want her to see me trying to dress. I developed a habit, then I still had it. I buttoned the top button and the bottom button of my shirt. Most buttons on my pants, just get my pants on, and as soon as she drove up in front, in front of the house, I bugged out. Of course, after I got settled down, I could button my shirt, and I still button it that way as we develop habits. They got around the corner then and get that half pint out. And of course, we all know as we progress in this drunkenness that it becomes more difficult for us to hold a drink down. That first one in the morning is rough, and there's been many, many times when I'd pray then. Oh, Lord, let one stay down. You know, the first three or four would come back up through your nose and your eyes, balls. So sick. And the vomiting early in the morning, things that happen to you there, the progression, getting worse and getting worse and getting worse. Jeanette saying more often, honey, something's happened to you. And my lying and my belligerence back, I can take it or I can leave it alone. The only thing was I didn't leave it alone, not ever. So finally one time, one Saturday, I got to feeling sorry for myself, called our minister. Of course, as I say, he loved me on account of that $500 raise, asking to meet me at the sanctuary. He did. We got there, and I started talking to him and lying to him, too, like I had been in my family, about my drink. So he had us both kneeled there, and he prayed long, and he prayed loud. And we left there, in front of Oaklawn Methodist Church, he turned to the right and went home, and I turned to the left and went to the Oaklawn Liquor Store and bought seven and a half pints of vodka. This is not much of an indication of a man who means to quit drinking. But I knew what Sunday morning would be without it. I knew I had the habit there. And then I would go in and get real melodramatic about the whole thing, get the family around. Quit. I'm quitting this stuff. I want you to come watch me pour in the commode. Pour in the commode, and little old daughter was so happy that first time, so was Jeanette and the kids, and her dad's quit drinking. Dad's quit drinking. Get up the next morning so filled with remorse, 
Not remorse about drinking. Remorse goes up toward my whiskey out. I had to go and buy some more. <laughs> I've gotten Jeanette to go to our bedroom with us, and both of us kneeled at the side of the bed. And bless her heart, I know she was praying, and I know he was hearing her. The prayer I was putting out wasn't so much, because the next night it was the same thing all over again. Drunk again. We talk about this being a disease. I'll say to you this. Jeanette never did refer to me as my poor sick husband. <laughs> but things progressed as they always do, and in the fall of 1959, the Army got fed up with me and my ways there. No one would speak to me. I couldn't get along with any of the employees or any of the reservists we worked with. And they transferred me down to Fort Hood, Texas. They thought they could order on me. I never did get there. But in the meantime, Jeanette had called my brother over from Little Rock. He brought a member from Stuttgart over. I had called Arvin and Bob, and they had come over. They came that night real clear-eyed and a uh, white shirt and a necktie on and talked to me about what had happened to them. And it made me feel so good that they had found something, and it convinced me that I wasn't an alcoholic. They had already been fired from a job, and Arvin's not much on firing. You really transfer you sometimes, but things had happened to Arvin and to Bob that hadn't happened to me. At that time, I hadn't been in jail. At that time, I hadn't had any trouble with the finance companies. I hadn't had much trouble with hot checks. And so I proposed that I would go along with this AA program. If they were selling a big book, sure, I would buy one. I'd have to give them a hot check for it, but it's going to make Jeanette feel better. I couldn't believe them. I wasn't ready to get up. I wasn't ready to get humble. I wasn't ready to admit that I was an alcoholic. So I gave it up until finally some time or another, I guess, Arvin got through to me one day at a time. This drunk had been going on for approximately eight months at that time. And one day, I said, well, this is it. I still had a few days before I had to report to Fort Hood. And I went without a drink that day. I think Jeanette says it was two days, really, and she knows more about my life than I do in that particular period of time. But at any rate, I was sitting there in the armchair watching television. All of a sudden, I came to, I was lying on the floor. Heard a door slam out front. Got up, went to the screen door and looked out, and there was an ambulance backing up to the front of my house. Jeanette was out in the yard, Arvin and Matilda, and I couldn't imagine what had happened. So Arvin saw me there at the door and came on up and asked me what happened, and he he diagnosed it well. I had had an alcoholic convulsion. Arvin, like I've done since then, well, we have to get a drink in him. He's going to go on DTs, which was true. I knew Jeanette had found two of my half pints of vodka. So I drank all the vodka out of and filled him back up with water, you know, thinking that she might think, well, he's not drinking as much as I really think he's drinking. So Jeanette started back to the kitchen with one of those bottles, and there my sins found me out. I said, it won't do any good, it's just water. And so that night, uh, we went out and got a half pint for me, and the next morning I surrendered. I didn't surrender to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't surrender to anything resembling sanity. I surrendered completely to the bottle. As soon as I could get myself together and walk to the liquor store. And I had to walk because in the meantime, the police had gotten me there. There was narrow-minded people. I was just driving down the left-hand side of the street. <laughs> and they arrested me. Put me in jail there with a bunch of drunks. I had a suit in town. Just embarrassed, no end over it. <laughs> but I surrendered to this thing. It's not for me. I wasn't intelligent enough to say, well, it's worked for Arvin, it's worked for Bob. And they've had these bad things happen to them. I wasn't able to do that. I guess, as I say, I wasn't ready. So came the 12th day of November, 1959, which is what I call my sobriety date. Jeanette had gone to a church meeting there in Hot Springs, and our three children were in school. 
And I decided to put into effect the plan that I had come up with that will solve any drinking problem. And so many of us have thought about it and some of us have attempted it. That is suicide. I knew that I had become unbearable to Jeanette and the children. I knew that I was no good to them. I knew that I was no good to me. And I felt like there was absolutely no hope for me. That I was one who would never be able to find sobriety or to find any peace of mind or to find the higher power. And so I went upstairs there in our old son's bedroom and got the twenty-two rifle out that I had uh, stashed around there and bullets that I had stashed around. Put a bullet into the rifle, brought it around to shoot myself, and it misfired. Went off, just clipped me alongside the face a little bit, didn't even leave a scar. And this should have gotten my attention, but it didn't. I loaded it again and put it over my heart, and I pulled the trigger, and she went off. And so by all rights, except for this thing of how great I am or how great he is, I should have been buried about the 14th or 15th of November, 1959, because this bullet hit my heart. Arvin and Matilda and Jeanette and uh, some doctors in Hot Springs can bury this out. And followed the outline of the heart and went out the back and hit a vein or something in there, and we just had a hell of a mess on our hands. They had to operate, go in and tie that off, and during that time, the records show that I, as they say, became pulseless and without respiration, which is dead, you know, just dead. The higher power again. Of course, the higher power had stepped in a little earlier, because had I stayed upstairs, and no one found me, I would have bled to death anyway. Had Jeanette stayed at her church meeting, she wouldn't have been home until the afternoon. I've heard her tell it herself, and I know it's true that she felt something was wrong. She rushed home, and when she got there, I wasn't upstairs, and I never will know how I got downstairs. The police found I had fallen across the bed and bled a good deal there, but I was downstairs when she found me. The ambulance came, and I remember night screaming down Central Avenue. I was over last year, just walking along, and remembered this, this quite exciting trip that I made down through there. I was so surprised that I wasn't dead, but at any rate, after I got there in this operation and the temporary death and... Then the DTs set in, full-blown DTs for 48 hours. The doctor saying he cannot possibly live. I think my sister-in-law over in Little Rock had bought the black accessories from a general. That often felt like I could live, the doctors especially. And out of them for 24 hours and back into them again, and they certainly said then there's no chance of this man living. The higher power continued to step in. I lived through that series of DTs. And my kidneys blocked sometimes during that, and they were thinking at once, I believe, about flying me to New York to put a pair of those artificial kidneys on. Live through that. The higher power steps in quite often. He doesn't do it for everybody, so if you're thinking about suicide, I don't recommend it. It might not happen to you this way. And of course, there's always some other things that can happen to you. There's an embarrassment that you live with around people other than alcoholics. But after a few days there in the hospital and somewhat of a recovery, I was flown from Hot Springs down to San Antonio, Texas. My brother over in Little Rock knows quite a few of them in Washington and made a few phone calls. They sent a special plane up for me, a full crew and five medics. They're me, an alcoholic, getting all this treatment. Got on there and uh, lied to them and told them it was accidental and all this kind of stuff. And they talked them into giving me a 30-day leave to come home. And I called Jeanette and told her, send me some money, I'm coming home. If there was anything she didn't need at that time, it was me. She was about in as bad a shape as I was, physically and mentally. So she called my brother again, and here we go. He calls uh, the hospital, and you know what they did? They sent a little uh, black wagon over for me there in that surgical ward, a couple of PFCs, and I resented that because that time I was a master surgeon. And they took me over to talk to some colonel. He was a psychiatrist. That man sat there and talked to me, and in less, about three minutes, I guess, he looked at me and he said, Sergeant, you're an alcoholic. Well, of course, he'd already heard some of the things about me, and my complexion was still this color, and I was rather thin at that time. I'd been vomiting a lot, and I was eating very much. I think the main thing that convinced him, though, is I've been in there about 
four minutes. I'd already told him five lies, and he hadn't asked me but about three questions. <laughs> we can lie. They committed me to their little funny barn down there, and I'll never forget to the uh, evening that they hauled me back over there and said, take off everything. Wedding band, wristwatch, the whole works. And they threw an old pair of big convalescent clothes and a pair of canvas slippers at me. I put these slippers on, and these convalescent clothes were about 40, and I was about 27 in the waist at that time, and I said, where's the belt? He said, you don't get a belt. They knew, too, what had happened to him. He said, this boy's trying to kill himself out here. You don't get a belt. So they took me on upstairs, and I found out what's behind the green door. You remember that song we had a few years ago? But anyway, I started up those stairs, and these old canvas slippers, one of them would fall off, and I'd reach down to put it back on, and my pants would fall off. This is real degrading for a man of my uh, military grade and my pride that I had. And they threw me into their maximum security ward there. And while sitting on the cot, the first morning I was there, I got it late that evening, First morning, we still picked up some AA literature that Jeanette had thrown in a bag. She had thrown that and the uh, big book. She still had hopes that I might find sobriety. I sat there at that time, and I said, well, old boy, I don't know where you've been trying to go, but it sure looks like you've gotten there. It might pay you to look a little bit at these 12 steps. And so I looked at them, and I think since then, at, at that time, and I still take them, though, every day, as I took the first three steps, I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol, and my life had become unmanageable. <laughs> And I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And I made a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of God as I understand it. God hadn't quit working. Amongst the medics there was a Spec 5 technician who was a member of AA. He happened to look through the few possessions I had when I turned them in and found a little AA button that Arvin had given me when I came to the program. I came up and visited with him and talked to the doctor and made arrangements for me to go to AA meetings there in San Antonio. And I went every night. After I was released from the hospital after some 32 days and had a short visit home, I was reassigned to 4th Army headquarters. Went to an AA meeting every night. I had to walk about four miles to get to Club 12. And then would either hitchhike over to another meeting or have one there. I recall one night I went and I had a total sum of 35 cents to my name. And Jeanette didn't have much more because the Army was taking most of what I owed them out of the check. But I had a quarter and a dime and an AA button. And I got just... At the group meeting place there, and I felt something hit my leg. I had a hole in my pocket and a hole in my shoes. My money and stuff fell out this hole. And I started scratching around there, and I found my dime and my A button. And at collection that night, I put my dime in, and I went home, went back to the apartment that night, broker than I've ever been in my life, I guess, but happier. Because it seemed like something was said during that meeting that made me realize more, too, that I was an alcoholic, but that there was hope, that there was salvation. The thing doesn't quit working. It keeps on. It keeps getting better. I got impatient down at San Antonio because they gave you a little six-month card, and I wanted that card so bad. I said, just about the first month I wanted it, in fact. I've learned to be a little bit more patient now. As I say, the days have turned into weeks, and the weeks years, the weeks months, and the months years. And so the things have come about, but it's still one day at a time. In 1963, I was transferred to Korea. Some of my family were a little upset. I don't think Jeanette was, but they thought, well, this is going to be real rough. You'll never stay sober there. I'm sure that's what they were thinking. And I've been assigned to Seoul, the city, the largest city there in Korea, which is a fairly decent place. But I have prayed to my higher power that whatever I do in Korea, let it be something for you. Let it be something for AA, because I feel like I'm better equipped in AA with the experiences I have behind me. Would you believe when I got off the plane there in Seoul and spent the night, the next morning I was told that I'd been diverted down to the 7th Infantry Division. At first I was bitter until I remembered this is what I've been talking to the man about. This is what I've been doing is offering myself. I got down to the 7th Division and 
Fairly soon after I got there, found it in the battalion I was in, a sergeant. It was over in sick bay in the hospital because of heavy drinking. One Saturday afternoon, I got a Jeep and a driver, no curtains on it, and real cold weather, and we bugged out across Camp Casey there. Got to the little dispensary sort of set up, and I was talking to the corpsman. But I understand you have a sergeant here who has a drinking problem. I'd like to talk to him. And down the hall, a voice came out and said, Is this someone from AA? I said, It is. He said, God does answer prayers. I've been praying and praying for a member of AA to come to this division. From that little thing there, with the support of this doctor, we got a little group started with Tom Dushani. Met on Saturday afternoons. I was later transferred up to Seoul, where I was supposed to have gone at first. We got a little group going at ASCOM. So the things still work out. Everything still works out. And you know, it's such a blessing, such a wonderful thing to see all the happy faces that you see in an AA meeting. As I said, I'm Methodist. I tell a little joke quite often. And you can tell it on another denomination. That's only natural, you know, about this man that got up in a big group of people and said, I can look at a person and tell what denomination they are. And this sister sitting over here is Episcopalian. That's right. And this brother sitting here is Catholic. That's right. This brother sitting here is Methodist. That's right. And this sister over here is a Baptist. She got up to know her. I've just been sick a long time is the reason I look like this. <laughs> I apologize to you, Baptist, but what we do find here in AA is a group of people that have found a higher power. A group of people that are acquainted with God and are happy about it. What a blessing and what a thrill it is to see someone come to this program and how they change. See them come in with a seat out of their bridges. they got hot checks all over their head. Their wives quit them or their husbands quit them. The whole world is shocked. In just a few weeks or a few months to be able to see this same person, bright-eyed, dressed up. He may not have real good clothes on. I've gone through that too, but they're clean. And he's got a different look on his face. And this reminds me of the painting of the Last Supper. We've all seen it by Da Vinci. You recall it took him seven years to complete this painting. Before he started, he searched around quite a bit to find someone that could pose as Christ. He wanted a person with a look of innocence, a look of cleanness, and a look of health that he felt Christ had. So he found a 19-year-old boy, and this boy posed as Christ, and it took eventually six months to finish the painting of Jesus alone. And then he started on the disciples. For some reason or other, he saved Judas until last. Each one he spent six months on until finally six and a half years had elapsed. He'd gotten Christ. He'd gotten all the disciples except Judas. Judas was such a low thing, such a betrayer, such a traitor, that he searched diligently there to find someone who might pose as Judas as he had someone to pose as Christ. Over in jail there, sentenced to be die, he found the man. He had a look of hardness on his face, a look of sin, a look of complete dejection. Been sentenced to die for murder and rape, probably was an alcoholic. And so he made arrangements with the warden that this man would be released to him for six months until he could finish painting <coughs> Judas, and then he would be returned to the prison and executed. At the end of the six months, which was a total of seven years, the man was to be carried back, and he said, Da Vinci, don't you remember me? And he said, No, I never saw you before this six months. He said, My God, my God, can sin change a man so much? I am the one who posed as Christ. This is a thing we see in reverse. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we see this person come in who might look like Judas, and after these few weeks or a few months, or certainly after several years, when you see the serenity set in, you see this person who is happy today, who is at peace with the world. We're going back to Fort Smith in a little while. It's been so nice being with you, and I'd like to close my portion of this program with a little prayer that I see quite often and heard used once at an AA meeting. An Irish prayer that goes something like this. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. 
May the rain fall gently on your fields. And may God, as you understand him, hold you in the palm of his hand. Thank you so much. See this person who is happy today, who's at peace with the world. We're going back to Fort Smith in a little while. It's been so nice being with you, and I'd like to close my portion of this program with a little prayer that I see quite often and heard used once at an AA meeting. An Irish prayer that goes something like this. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the rain fall gently on your fields. And may God, as you understand him, hold you in the palm of his hand. Thank you so much. <laughs>